Book Supplied Podcast, presented by WSL Leadership. In this podcast, we talk about an awesome book and how to apply it to your work, sport, or life. I'm your host, Iggy Perillo. Thanks for joining me. Hello, everyone. Today, we'll be talking about the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and I'm here talking with Mark Sorovic. Hello, Mark. I'm so excited that you're excited about this book. I'm thrilled. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, I'm super excited about this book. I can't talk and it's going to be great. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Will you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, just, you know, the 10 second bio, whatever, do whatever you want. But yeah, okay. tell us about you. My name is Mark Sorovic. I am the founder and owner of Workplace Solutions. So we are a small business dedicated to the idea that life is too short for work to suck. So we create um, catalytic events and trainings that help people build, ma- build, manage, and train their team. Fantastic. And we met in a space that is sort of dedicated to experiential education and growth and learning, which is super fun. And so and it came across somehow in some conversation we had that you like this book and I like this book. That's great. What brought you to this book in the first place or how did you find it or what caught your eye about it? I was actually in another conference we had put on um, with my previous employer. We had put on a small open space style conference for some of our international partners. And one of the gentlemen, I think he was from Uganda, said, this is the best book ever. And mm. I'm like, okay. I, I was unfamiliar with the book and I decided to read. And some of my enthusiasm for the book has to do with the time period in which I read it. So I read oh. it. Okay. The first time during the heart of the pandemic. Oh. And so there's a, obviously a lot of emotion with that, but it, <laughs> <For sure. laughs> uh, it, but it really helped me understand a lot of the things that were going on in the world. So I was, mm. so, so I think this, and I can talk more about that later, but oh, I, yeah, we'll I, get to that. I, I absolutely love this book. It's, it's one of the two books that I think about the most in terms of how I run my own business. So this mm. and uh, the Power of Moments by Chip and Dan. Oh, yeah. We've so. talked about that a tiny bit, too, mm-hmm. in other times. It's another great book, for sure. I have an episode on that book. If folks want to, you know, promote myself on myself, you'll find <laughs> that one. Power of Moments, pretty good. Pretty good time. Uh, yeah, so this book, it actually came out in 2013. So it's not, like, shockingly brand new. But I think it launched Daniel Kahneman to getting a Nobel Prize down the road. Mm-hmm. Like, he, this is a really... Um, a lot of research, a lot of thought, but also very readable. So I don't want people to be to start off being like, oh my gosh, Nobel Prize, oh, neuroscience, brains. Uh. <laughs> like it's actually really readable in an engaging book and tons of, he does a great job of telling stories to sort of move these little pieces along and giving tons of examples. So although we're going to probably talk about, I'm sure some science and other things, the book is still very readable. Don't forget about that. Uh, so you read during the pandemic, I read this book a little, probably in the mid, like 20. 15, 16. So it had been out for a little bit, but a while ago. And I still think about it all the time. And it really, I think, changes how I approach interacting with people in different ways. Mm. And a lot of the concepts that Kahneman talks about, I you then see later, right? Like you, he talks about them, then later you're like, oh, there's a bias. Oh, there's that thing mm-hmm. happening. Oh, there's system one or system two. So when you said this came up 
came up a lot for you during the pandemic and the emotions attached to it. Tell me about how emotions attached to the ideas in this book for you. For one, I found myself just being absolutely excited every time I would learn something new in this book. It, I just had uh, mind-blowing day after day, and I would come into the next Zoom meeting be like, you guys will not believe this. <laughs> <laughs> what were some and, of those things? What were some of those mind-blowing oh, things for you that uh, you were like, just had to blabber on about? Because I was similar, uh, I think. I think the... I mean, there's, there were so many, I, for, I've forgotten over half of them. So I'm, I'm sure. actually rereading the book right now, but okay, some, okay. some that, that really stick out were when they, when he talked about the difference in statistics for death rate versus survivor rate and how that information was presented. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so when, uh, and, and uh, caveat, I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Str- Talking with Strangers, right after this. So if I accidentally reference something in that book that's not in this book, <laughs> Great. Uh, if, if you can't find it in here, it's it's in that other book. Perfect. But, no worries. Um, no worries. But the the idea that a doctor would make a different medical decision based on if they were presented with the information of it's a 90% survival rate versus a 10% mortality rate. Mm. And and that actually making different decisions based on that. And these are people who are go to a (laughs) go to school for a very long time to get their expertise. And just that one detail changes their behavior. And so for me, that was, in the beginning of the pandemic, um, and I don't want to get into you know the, the political side of that, but that idea of of that uh, that original conflict between is this a big deal or mm-hmm. not? Mm-hmm. You had the one the one group of people saying, "Well, look, ninety nine percent of the people survive," and the other group of people saying, "Look at these hundreds of thousands of people that are dying," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and. And it, it finally made sense, like both groups of people are intelligent and they're just focused on that detail. And so when you say, oh, yeah, 99% of people survive sounds doesn't sound like as big of a deal as it is. And you say, well, a million people have died. Well, OK, that that is a really big deal. <laughs> so but but it, it it really helped me understand how very intelligent people could come to very different conclusions uh, during that season where nobody really knew kind of what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it speaks a little bit to one of the biases that Kahneman talks about, which is the what you see is all there is bias. Mm-hmm. And so we see a small slice of things sometimes and we're like, that's it. That's all there is. That's the part I see <laughs> is the part I recognize. And there isn't even anything else beyond that. That's just what there is. And we and that's like a like data is like a pretty good, you know, small scale example of this. If I only see data for um, that, oh yeah, like this sort of classic example, like all swans are white. I've only ever seen white swans. What I see is a white swan. That's all there is. And someone's like, P.S. By the way, in Australia, they have swans that are black and your brain explodes. You're like, there's no data for that. That doesn't exist. It's not even a thing. You know, like our like we can't handle that. Uh, we can't, it's not that we can't handle it, uh, but our brain has to work very differently to, to take in information that we didn't even conceive of before. Mm. And, I think this is sort of the the title of the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks about these two brain systems. And so we have a fast-thinking brain system that's looking for patterns, making leaps, you know, intuitive, kind of jumping through things. And we have the slow-thinking version where we have to basically downshift a little bit in our brain and really do 
difficult cognitive work and we don't have the energy. It takes a lot of energy to do really difficult cognitive work. Like we're suddenly driving uphill in the mud. Wheels are spinning. Stuff is happening. We're barely making progress. Our brain is working that hard versus we're going down a water slide. We're like, woo! Like we've like hit the pool at the bottom because that other system, our brain works so quickly and we don't always recognize it. They both have their pluses and minuses. Like when we go really fast, sometimes we miss things because we're making these leaps. We're looking for patterns. We're like, cool, everything fits this pattern. We're done. We don't necessarily notice the outliers or other parts of these things. And our brains are, and it's easy and we like it. We like it and it's easy. And we recognize a pattern. We're like, ding, we got it. And so we feel really good about ourselves sometimes, but we miss things. And hard work is hard on the flip side. And we wimp out and stop working hard sometimes. So we don't always get to that conclusion at the end. Yeah. I was surprised by how often we think we're operating in system two when we're really (laughs) operating in system one. And I do wish he had different terms for that. I I get system one and system two mixed up. Like that's for a person that focuses on memory. I was very surprised that that was his choices, but (laughs) like they're not very fancy. The names are not at all fancy, but yeah, that, that idea of, I think I'm making a rational choice, but I'm actually affected far more by some of these biases or some of these heuristics and, uh, or the, the chapter where he talked about, replacing an easier question with a harder question or sorry, replacing a harder question with an easier question. So is this a good, is this company worth investing in? Uh, That's a hard question to ask. That's all the business data that's involved. Do I like this brand? That's an easy question to answer. And then you substitute that same thing with a political candidate. Do I like this candidate is different than will this person actually be effective and competent? So, right. Tough question, right? Yeah. And we, that's a great point that we, we like it to be easy and we make it easy on ourselves. And he really talks about the physiology of like your brain is burning a lot of energy. And so we can't always make great choices. We can't always operate in that much more logical, deep thinking way, nor do we always have to, but we sometimes don't even have the energy for it. We're just mm. like tapped out. Like I don't have the glucose in my brain to think very deeply right now. And I think some of that, obviously we don't always take, keep track of it. Sometimes people are like, oh, I'm really hungry right now. Like we can recognize when we're hungry or thirsty or, you know, stress in other ways. But I think we don't really get into how much that affects our thinking because we, like on the inside, we think we're doing a great job. Like, oh yeah, my brain figured this out. I'm amazing. And you're like, okay, thanks. Look who's telling you this. It's your brain, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Are there other parts from this book that were really like caught your attention as you were reading through? Um, I think one, a couple things, the, the idea about anchors. So I really was fascinated by the chapter on anchors where even anchors that had, that were outrageous. I think he mentioned if you, um, was Gandhi less than or older than 155 when he died and, (laughs) you know, that, that if you gave that as an anchor that actually pulled up your estimate of of how old he was when he died versus not giving that anchor or giving a, a lower anchor. And I think practically um, just he gave several examples where you were influenced by things like, was there money on the 
screensaver mm-hmm. in, in the experimental mm-hmm. condition. Uh, and, and it's like, are, I just, I want to rail against that idea of like, I'm, I'm not affected by that. Oh, and, yeah. and it's like, Oh, like I'm not the one who would be affected by that. And, and yet we are. And I think oh, that's yeah. the, that's the, the both scary thing of, of, what if some of these things are used for evil versus good? <laughs> so, right, right. So I see just, um, I have a fear there, but also just an an understanding of how those anchoring principles come out. And because I know as a small business owner who is responsible for setting my own prices, I have to think about some of those concepts and I don't want to manipulate people. I want to, um, but knowing kind of what your starting point is affects where you're going. Um, right. Right. So, well, and you still want to be anchored to like quality, right. Yeah. And not necessarily mm-hmm. like, and so dollars equal quality. So then you have to like do some weird math in there and your brain has to come up with something and yeah. And you have to have speak that in a way that other people understand. I think some of the, one of the other parts I liked about this book was when he talked about um, evaluating the uh, kind of been worked for the Israeli, a military system mm. for a while. And he talks about how you decide who's going to be an officer and who's not. And so he was sort of in charge of this officer training uh, program where you decide if people go on to continue in leadership roles or if they don't. And my world is the world of leadership. So this, you know, is very in- interesting to me. But how you decide can be very statistical, right? You can look at, well, they're, you know, they scored this on this test and they could run this fast and they could do this thing and they could do this on this other metric, you know, and it was really important to also look at how you feel about the person, right? Do I feel mm. like they'd be a good leader? Is it, do I think they'd be great? And I think he skewed them from, at one point they were only this sort of feeling space of like, well, they seem good. Oh, they look great. And so, which led into a whole bunch of other biases because we're biased toward people who resemble ourselves or who we resonate with in ways that are actually mirroring our own ideas, our own perspectives, our own selves in different ways. So we're, we lose, when we just go with who we like, we lose some, um, objectivity obviously mm. and when we go to only the stats it seems really cold and distant di- and it doesn't quite get to, to the heart of if we think someone's good or not because there's so many intangible pieces like leadership is there's a lot of intangibles there so he sort of helped de- them develop this system where you do metrics you do tests you do studies you see what's happening you look at this you look at that and then um he said he went back to visit later and he's like oh yeah how are you doing the, you know how's this going and he's like well the people are like well we do these tests we do this and then we sit back and we close our eyes and we think how do i feel about this seeing this person as the leader in the future like <laughs> do i get a good feeling or not like they just sit there and have it's like actually a part of the process to the how you feel about this person from the evaluator's perspective which i thought was great this mix of um the very rational like quantitative mm. and qualitative blended mm. together yeah i think one one thing that surprised me from the book, I keep saying one thing. There's like hundreds yeah, of things. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you you could probably do six episodes on this book easy. Mm-hmm, it's it's mm-hmm. it's that full. It's that full. Um, was when he referenced this the statistics with the judges uh, and right? their their length of sentence. What was most influenced by the proximity of the last time they had a meal. Yeah. Which, which is just mind blowing considering all of the social justice conversation and those kind of things to say it it's, it, 
<laughs> yeah. Just give, get, get that, get that guy some Doritos, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And it was like obvious. It wasn't just like, Oh, skewed a little bit. It was blatantly like, yeah, the ones, the people whose case was heard right before lunch got way harsher senses. Like they're just like, you're, we're done with you. Get out of here. Then people who were right after lunch. Like if you compare like the 11 o'clock versus like the one o'clock sessions, you know, or whatever it was with noon being the lunch hour, I think they, yeah, it was drastically different from one to the other. I think though, and this has affected my life a little bit. Uh, he also talks about doctors and people in medical professions, similarly doing better, more thorough assessments earlier in the day. And as they get tired later in the day, you know, not not necessarily worse outcomes, well, slightly worse outcomes, but like less time, less patience, you know, some of these more um, brain intensive things like judgment, assessment, looking at that. So I try always to schedule my medical appointments as early in the day as possible from here on out, because I'm like, I I would rather have that 8 a.m. appointment and bust my butt to get up there early than roll in at 4.30 when they're right about to clock out for the day. I mean, we feel that we know that in ourselves, like, oh, yeah you know, it's the end of the day, I'm not going to engage anything too tough or too hard, but nor do I want my doctor in that position to sort of be winging it at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, it's almost like we sometimes forget that people who are operating in a professional capacity are people too. (laughs) I know crazy, but when you, when you're, they're doing the service, you know, it's, it's like, well, hey, they're still on the clock. They should be at full mm-hmm. capacity. And and it's they're they're people. They get tired. They they yeah. need food. They um it, it's yeah. it it shouldn't surprise us. Um, but so many folks kind of muscle through that yeah. and power yeah. through that and and don't let their guard down that it's 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 like, oh, they actually are really tired and they mm-hmm. their decision making might be not not suspect, but but affected. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely affected. Definitely yeah. affected in some ways. Uh, was, is there another part that like comes to mind? Another light bulb moment from this book for you? Um, I got a lot of insight into project management and project planning mm. from some of the expectations. So here Kahneman shares what they expected as far as how long it would take to write the book. Oh and yeah, that's hilarious. That's so funny. <laughs> who is an expert in this still dramatically underestimated how long the process would take. And uh, I think, I, I forget exactly how he says it, but the the lesson for me was you people are by default plan for the best case scenario mm-hmm. and they, mm-hmm. uh, I was involved in a project that uh, that that went that way, where where the leadership had basically said, "Oh yeah, you know, it's it's not, it's you know, it's going to take us like two weeks," and it 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 didn't. Right, right. <laughs> um, and and it's just like, yeah, this. I think for me, when I think about when I'm planning a project what things can go wrong, where are the potential delays, almost assuming that. Um, I read somewhere, I think it was Microsoft automatically adds 20 or 25% to all of their internal project mm, timelines, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just knowing that that's a truth. Yeah. And and they just said across the board policy, write it up. And then we're, we're off the bat, we're going to put like a 25% buffer on there because things don't go according to plan. There's delays, there's life gets in the way, uh, you know, 
right now we're obviously dealing with supply chain things. Sure, which sure, sure. Hopefully when we're li- folks listen to this episode 30 years in the future, <laughs> that's done. <laughs> like, what is that? We, we yeah. fix that. Yeah. Right? So, well, yeah. But but that, that idea of applying that to project planning and it's going to take longer than you expect. It's you're you've got the best case scenario. And one of the things I really appreciate about the book in the book is at the end of each chapter, when he gave examples of questions of how to deal with some of those heuristics and biases mm-hmm. to set to gave very specific examples of saying, ask this question in that context. And I, I'm struggling to recall some of those at the moment, but yeah. I thought that was super helpful. Yeah. Or he gives like a little like scenario of like, here's what mm. this looks like in action kind of thing yeah. a little mm. bit. One or the other, one or the other. Um, he, uh, speaking of like the, how long it takes to write, takes to write the book. The story was hilarious because he was, he and two other people were writing a book together. There are three of them and they're like, Oh, how long should this take? And one person's like, Oh, this is going to take six months. And the other person's like, this is going to take a year. And he's like, well, well, how good are people at guessing how long this will take when they work together? And he, so he got into the research a little bit and he's poking around and he's like, oh, people underestimate by like 50% often. So Microsoft's 25% is, is nice. So they they think that they're doing a good job. And then he found that like a certain percentage actually never finish at all. Like some this, whatever, whatever was like 20% are like, takes twice as long as they estimate. And then some other percent, like 10% just never get done ever. And he's like, whoa. So we might be off by, hundreds of percent you know like we might be 200 percent off in this and or we might never get done <laughs> which i'm like oh yeah it's good to know and that you can like you can look into these things and think about how yeah we're we're making guesses we're estimating and i think he talks a little bit also about how we we plan for our future self to be better than our current self in a lot of ways <laughs> so our future self is like oh yeah my future self is gonna be able to follow that project no problem there's not going to be like just exactly what you were saying. There's not going to be any hiccups along the way. Future self has got that nailed. Current self is like, you know, is going to be future self someday. So no problems. Like current, we're actually only ever our current self. Problems happen constantly. Yeah. We get screwed up all over the place. Yeah. Current self called in sick yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, weird. How does this even happen? Yeah. I think the, uh, I mean, I just, there's so, you're right. There's so many interesting points of this book in terms of how, I hadn't really thought about, I hadn't been thinking of that project management part for a while, but we do a terrible job of estimating how long our work will take, especially when we work with others, right? And how we are doing other things. Another part that I liked was when he talks about giving feedback to people and like he did the the math, negative feedback doesn't work. Like it doesn't encourage growth and progress to tell someone what they're doing wrong all the time without also telling them some of the things that they do right. Like we, we sort of know this, we hear this, like, yeah, give, you know, don't forget to support people. And I think there are spaces where that doesn't land, you know, people don't believe that you can give people positive feedback. It will be will function or work, or, you know, we'll just make them soft and they'll never do the work. Um, the stats are not in your favor, people, if that's you, because giving only con- crit- critical feedback, only constructive feedback exclusively demoralizes people. We know this, there's math, there's science, there's brain science to it. Thanks, Kahneman. And it, you perform worse over time if you are only getting this sort of, here's what you did wrong. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what you did wrong type of feedback. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed the chapter on availability bias where we recall, what we recall influences us much more than we think it does. So 
we don't necessarily think of the statistics of something, how prevalent it is. It's more, can I think of an example of this in action and how much that affects our decision-making, how much that affects public policy. So whatever the squeaky wheel is, gets the grease, uh, whether or not that's truly the biggest threat or uh, priority, it becomes that because it's, it's fresh in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for um, group processes, right? When the group is, mm-hmm. we see a group working together and the last thing that they talk about suddenly becomes a plan for the next thing. Even, you know, they spend five minutes talking about this and that and this and that. Then suddenly the thing that happens in the last two minutes, you know, 30 seconds of the conversation is suddenly really present in terms of whatever happens next. You know, the the last piece is overly influential in future plans often, which is... Yeah. Interesting. Like, and it sort of sets us up for ways to work around that, right? To keep track along the way, to, you know, get a sense of, oh, this thing is really important. We'll come back to it and then come back to it. Or, you know, I think we want to sometimes we're both in a space where we want to generate a lot of ideas or a, a lot of options and then find the best one. So if you're doing that process of generating a lot of options, whatever you generate first gets lost. Even if it is like the first couple are like really great and we're like, no, generate more. Then you're like, whatever this like, bottom of the barrel last thing you could possibly think of suddenly gets more weight because it was generated last in the process. So uh, I think something super practical I picked up from the book, uh, I think early on he mentions how something that's not true still affects you even unless you, your system too actively says that is not true. And you've taken (laughs) that mental effort to declare that that's not true. And it just made me wonder, and and that's especially if you're tired. So you talked earlier about that lack of energy. So if you are other, if your brain is engaged in something else, or you are just generally tired scrolling through, you know, Facebook and Instagram might not be the best application. And it's, it's almost more insidious in that, uh, that if I'm up late scrolling through Facebook, that is not a place that is known for accuracy of information. right? Right. (laughs) So those things can still influence me if I'm not actively saying no, (laughs) stopping at each post saying that is true or not true. And that's, uh, you know, no one actually does that when they're scrolling through their feed. So it makes me just really think about some of the the behaviors or habits that I may have to say, all right, if I'm tired, I should not be scrolling through something where it can influence me because it's going to affect me more than I think it does. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, that's, I think that's, it's, it's both scary, but something that I can actively do to say, I'm not going to put myself in that compromised situation, even though in the moment, it doesn't feel like you're compromised. Oh, yeah. I I think the one of the themes throughout this whole book is on the inside, we always think everything is great. And in the reality, we're getting affected a lot more than we anticipate or than we expect, I suppose, down the road. Because we're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm I'm a sharp person. I, I can tell what's a lie and what's not a lie or whatever. But even that yeah, I love that example of just sort of scrolling through and seeing headlines, seeing, you know, blurbs, seeing like short little pieces of information, often out of context, often, you know, in sort of um, skewed lights in different ways, you know, I think some of that does affect, yeah, I mean, I don't even think we know that affects us more than we think, because we are in that, that place of being 
not on our guard. And system two, that deep thought, it takes a ton of energy. And of course, we're not set up for using our energy very well when we're fatigued at the end of the day, you know, that late, late day system. It's interesting. I think it's, yeah, I like how you're talking about it. It applies then to how you choose, how, what you do and when you do it based on your energy level. And I think people often are just consuming at the end of the day, like, oh, I'm going to watch a movie. I'm going to binge a show. I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. But I think some of the other interesting point you make about how I'm going to, what information I'm going to put myself, set myself to intake at that time is also pretty critical in terms of how that's going to influence me down the road. What, uh, what about you, Iggy? What are some of the things that jumped out at you? <laughs> I've been blabbering along along the way. I think the, uh, oh, I mean, just the idea of these two systems. Oh, I love the part where they're talking, they're trying to figure out how these systems and what you can see and if they're physiological or if they're just mental, whatever. And so they have a camera looking at people's eyes and you can see how the eyes dilate or contract mm-hmm. based on how much, um, when our eyes are, I think it was dilated more. I might be getting this wrong. Um, we're taking in more information. Like literally our eyes are a little bit wider open. We're getting more information in. Our brain's working harder. We're processing a lot. And so then when we stop taking less inf- that much information and our eyes contract a little bit, like our irises actually contract a tiny bit. So we are literally taking in less information and light, you know, into our eyeballs. So, and our brain is processing a little bit less. And so they can put the camera on people's face and look at them and ask them these t- difficult questions. And like, not like, crazy difficult, but complicated math. Like, oh, what's two times two? And people got that easy one, easy one. Then they're like, what's 24 times 17? Suddenly their brain is like, oh, and they could see them trying to work it out. And then they could see their eyes contract when they knew they could visually see the people had given up on that deep thinking before Mm -hmm. the person said, "Uh, you know, I don't know. I can't quite get that one. Or, you know, whatever it is, like people step out. So step away from that. And so we could see physiologically that people, what system people were engaged in. And we're not always going to look at people's irises and see like, wait, are they dilated or contracted right now? Like, can we see that? But I thought that was fascinating that it is, there are other physiological responses to what thinking system we're using at any given time. And uh, that was, that was really exciting as a facilitator and trainer to put actual physiological evidence to that feeling you get like, it looks like they're thinking. I, I don't know why. It looks like they're processing because one of the uh, a good facilitator in our industry is comfortable with silence, mm-hmm. and good trainers are comfortable with silence. And the expectation there is that you, during that silence, there's processing going on. They're not just you know thinking when is this garbage going to be over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was you hope, um, right. but but it was nice to see that that was a there there's real things that that your senses are picking up on and i'm not saying that facilitators are like the mentalist where we can <laughs> you know see a, a fold on the collar and and you know know everything about them but but there is that that eye response is a real thing that you notice whether you're noticing it consciously or not and prior to that i would I didn't have a way of describing even like, yeah, I can tell they're still thinking, at least I believe they're still thinking. And and I think I'm right a lot of the time, but you know, you're picking up that, that movement of the eyes is just one of the subtle signals. So, yeah. And I think we process some of those subconsciously as, Mm -hmm. as people who work in the space of can I like we we work in the space of wondering if are people thinking are they working on it or are they not are they just sitting there right and as you in educational spaces too you have to 
you learn to read those signals in a much more subtle way. And I think some of this book also, like those, you can move things from system two of me examining your eyeball response to, okay, I get, I see this pattern, right? I see this pattern in you when I ask a question, when the group is doing this thing, when this type of thing is happening, here's what I kind of expect. Are things fitting into this pattern I expect? Can I tell from you, you know, as a person that I've known for a while, can I see the signals that you're still thinking or that you're done thinking that you're engaging or that you're disengaging? So I think you, you can move some of these things from this like deeper thought realm to a much like pattern based, um, heuristic based, like, Oh, I have my shortcuts now. I don't have to think about it so much. And so you can transfer things, situations, pieces of knowledge systems from one to the other, which I think is also really fascinating. The, um, the, I think the, the last thing for me that I really focused on was that hindsight bias. Uh, so the, the, and I think most people are probably familiar with that idea of, you know, it's, it's, you seem much more confident about the past after it's happened. Uh, but you see the implications of that all the time where successful CEOs get these big packages of, 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 you know, compensation and, and it's like, well, maybe they were, they were just lucky, yeah, <laughs> or, right. you know, or, or it, golly, in, in my line of work, I see a lot of teams or organizations that succeed in spite of the leader uh-huh, uh-huh, right. <laughs> and, but the, the leader gets the credit and it's like, oh man, they are <laughs> just because the outcome was good. Doesn't mean the process was good is, is one of my big things. Cause if, if you're successful, but you ground people to dust on the way there, then. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I think there's, um, I've been, uh, adjacent to that idea and not quite yeah. from this book, like over yeah. time, you see that wear on people, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's what they, I guess, relate, tying it back into the book. Like if you're only giving this sort of do better, do better, you know, like you're only this sort of driving personality or or critical feedback. And then you're like, look, everyone was successful because I told them to do the, the better thing all the time. And everyone's like, that leader is such a jerk and I hate them and I don't want to spend any time with them. Eventually over time, I think that evens out because the most talented people mm-hmm. will leave. Like, yeah. the, so you'll see, that you can see short-term successes and you can see, oh, if I, you know, really like yell at you a lot and put a lot of pressure on you and then you rise to the occasion, that works very short-term. And then over time, people are like, I actually don't want to live in this this level of pressure, this level of, you know, scrutiny, this level of being driven constantly. So I'm going to change. I'm going to make a change to somewhere else, something else, you know, whatever. So I would be curious to see those. When the company is succeeding despite the leadership what happens over time, right? Like short-term gains, you know, whatever, like a little peak, but what happens with the staff, the people, the the collective knowledge, the ability for growth long-term, like how much is that hampered by this sort of short-term spike in productivity? Good stuff. So many interesting things. I feel like similarly, there are like 4,000 other topics from this book that are <laughs> so great. Yeah, that was that was the list of all the ones that I specifically had to talk about, but oh, I could yeah. probably talk about this book for days. Yeah. So, yeah, so. It's so good. I guess the to we should finish talking someday about this or finish <laughs> this conversation. I'm sure we'll maybe we'll have more. But I love this I think book actually really introduced me to the idea of cognitive dissonance in a really mm. meaningful way that we 
we sort of see things and want to do things in a way that's easy for ourselves. But when we act counter to what we think, how we think we should be acting, for example, our brain struggles and we get in this sort of state of tension. And in the very first beginning of this chapter, there's this sort of, um, he talks sort of about, um, uh, what are they called? The uh, sort of putting our brain in a state of conflict. And so we have a, a list of things. I think, I don't know if you've seen these before. Um, and it'll say the word left or right, but they'll be on either the left or right side. So mm. you have to say which side the word's on, but you'll see the word right, but it'll be on the left side, for example, at, at times. So you're trying to read through this list quickly and say left or right based on where the word is physically located, but not what the word itself says. And our brain wants to read what the word says. And so we're like, wait, no, that's on the left, but it says right. And then this one, you know, uh, so we can we put ourselves in a state of struggle. And that's like an example of cognitive dissonance, that we're n- not doing what we think Part of our brain thinks I'm reading a word. Part of our brain thinks I'm looking at a space. And so we, mm. they conflict and we have that sort of internal conflict. And I think this idea of we avoid cognitive dissonance in some ways, but we also tell ourselves a lot of stories to make cognitive dissonance okay for ourselves. And so that rationalization of the dissonance we, the dissonance situations we put ourselves in is, was another part of this book that came up for me a few times in different ways. Because I think we see people making making bad choices, whatever that means, but then they can rationalize them later and be like, well, this was because of this. And that again, that hindsight bias, like, well, this was a great idea because look at this amazing outcome or, you know, something else. But in reality, it's a really dissonant decision. You know, people who say, oh, I'm a really honest person, but then they, they're like, wait, but you're telling some lies over here. Like, that's okay. Like, how, how do you rectify these things and put them together? So dissonance, I think that idea of conflict, uh, internal conflict was really uh, a fascinating mm-hmm. part of this book for me. I was just uh, thinking about um, going back to that idea of anchoring, how that plays out in um, in inflated uh, job titles. Mm. So when <laughs> someone has an exaggerated job title, they're the director of something or the vice president of something. I'm like, there's only three people in your company. You're not a vice president. Right. So, <laughs> but the... But how that plays out over a career, mm. you, you get a bunch, if it only takes one inflated job title for fo- to apply for other jobs of that caliber. And it turns out that, that there's actually this incentive to inflate the job title because now um, inflated job title gives you opportunities that you wouldn't have had without that title. Uh, because that it matters much more than we think it does. So, yeah. um, and if you've ever met someone that that is in a role because they had a inflated title and just kept getting inflated roles, you're just like, oh man. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate for yeah. everyone who has to work with you. That's too yeah. bad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we should, I guess, wrap this up a little bit. Any last thoughts or final takeaways or things that you? I know you got your list. You're so organized. I really appreciate that. Good job. Um, any other pieces of this book that you're like, oh, yeah, or things that you use more often from the book? Uh, I would say the what you see is all there is. Mm-hmm. So if you remember one phrase from the book, what you see is all there is, is is a that's that's not a good thing. So <laughs> so just remembering there often are other options. There often are things to consider that aren't in front of you. So when you slow down and take that time, um, 
there there may be possibilities that that you are able to access uh, because what you see is not all there is. Oh, that's so great. Such a great point. Thanks so much, Mark, for coming onto the podcast today and chatting with me. It's been a fun talking with you. I've had a good time. Same here. Thanks, Iggy. You bet. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Book Supplied Podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a new book and learning how to apply its ideas to make your work, sport, or life a little bit more awesome. For more leadership education-related content, including conflict management checklists, invitations to a fun-free lunch that happens monthly, upcoming classes, webinars, and mastermind groups, please head over to wslleadership.com. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you.